Well, we're finally back to our study in 1 Samuel. I have an objective of finishing this before June. Uh, come June, we're going to have a lot of visitors, uh, guests with us. We have, um, let's see who's first on the docket. I think it's Pastor Lawsing is first, followed by Pastor Reddy, followed by Pastor Silcott. So we've got three weeks in June. That'll be occupied with that. Brian, if you could close that door, too, when you leave. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to try to finish this up, get through First Samuel by then. Uh, we will then uh, not really start a new series till uh, July um, for that. Um, also, I want to give you the heads up that we'll be moving Sunday school here in June to the... Uh, 9.15 time frame, a.m. for the summer, just for the coolness of the day. Um, and then, of course, as uh, we shared this morning, we'll be moving prayer meeting to Wednesday night once where life is completed. And so just so you can set your calendar a little bit of what's going on <clears throat> as we get into our, uh, start graduating into our summer schedule here in the next few weeks. Uh, and we are looking forward to having all those folks here. It's kind of interesting. We feast or famine, I guess, when it comes to having them. And so we're looking forward to some great time with them. Um, and uh, Lord willing, uh, having a time of real ministry from them, but also to them. Uh, unfortunately, for the lossings, we only have them for one service. So we'll only be here for the evening because they're only going to be here for one Sunday. They want to hit Rio Rancho as well as um, us. And so we'll have them for the evening service only. Uh, Pastor Reddy for just one Sunday. I'd a- actually hope to have him here for a couple of Sundays. And then uh, the Silcots will be here at the end of the month uh, to uh, do a children's club uh, coming up to the 4th of July. And so uh, set your calendars accordingly. Well, let's go. Let, go let me start over that. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we get into our study tonight. Lord God, would you thank you. For your love for us, thank you for the opportunity, again, that you give us tonight to gather in your name. And for each one here, we pray that your spirit might move in our midst. And we rejoice in the privilege to take your word and to study it, to learn from it, to consider its truth, and to bring it into our lives. And, uh, Lord, we know these opportunities are few and uh, far between, really, uh, corporately. And, Lord, we pray that... uh, we might make use of it effectively, uh, efficiently tonight. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have been working our way through David's encounters as the enemy of the state, if you recall several weeks ago. Um, and we have looked at him working very hard not to make the enemy or the state his enemy. And he has refused to... Uh, move against Saul. We come to chapter 24, and we have had now three occasions where David has been delivered directly by the hand of God. And so the first occasion, he tried to run away, and his wife uh, lied on his behalf, and they tried the little sneaky thing under the covers in the bed. Uh, And it looked like it might have worked, but then it really didn't, because Saul chased him down very quickly. But we find God intervening, and as each one came to uh, uh, 
takes David. He falls down and becomes a prophet, including the king himself. And David escapes again by the hand of God, uh, really demonstrating that the, of the unnecessity of uh, the uh, conniving that was done in his house to avoid being captured. Uh, we then have him being delivered from the city of Keilah by God's uh, revelation. That God says, no, you can't trust these individuals uh, in this city. You need to get out. And uh, the Lord is responding to him. God is not giving direction leadership to Saul, but he is giving it now to David. And David responds and uh, gets out of the city. And as soon as that happens, uh, Saul just stops because he's like, I can't chase him down. Uh, once he gets out of the city. We ended chapter 23 by David again in the wilderness uh, and uh, around Moon, uh, Moon M-A-O-N, and uh, we find this is one of his uh, favorite places. And again, we find the people of Ziph, and they're going to come up a couple of times uh, in that region that wanted to demonstrate their loyalty to Saul. And so they re- Report to Saul the presence of David in their wilderness, in their region. And so um, they are giving their allegiance to the king, who is king. Um, It is uncertain how many people really know what's going on. We know finally that Jonathan's figured it all out. Um, And we saw Jonathan's statement in verse 17 of chapter 23, that, uh, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel. And I shall be next to you, even my father Saul knows that. We talked about this uh, uh, positive perspective that Jonathan carried that didn't line up with God's uh, declaration of what would happen to the family of Saul in addition to Saul. But certainly it encouraged them, made a covenant together, but it was the Ziphites who are going to, whether out of fear for Saul or out of respect for his authority, out of a sense of, of uh, uh, patriotism, uh, do send to Saul word that David is in their midst. And again, in, on this occasion, it looks as though David is going to be taken because Saul has come in, knows where he's at, uh, begins to encircle David. And we come to verse 26. And it says that Saul went on one side of the mountain, David and his men on the other side of the mountain. So David made haste to get away from Saul, for Saul and his men were encircling David and his men to take them. And the indication there is that they were uh, essentially uh, about to be hemmed in and then just squeezed down on that one mountain ridge. Um, What would have happened there, we don't know and we don't need to know because it didn't happen. Uh, Saul gets a messenger and of all the times for Philistines to invade the land, it's right when you got David under your thumb. And messengers come and show up just in the nick of time. Um, and, of course, God is involved in that. He says, hurry up, the Philistines have invaded the land. And Saul leaves off pursuing him, and they call the place the Rock of Escape. It is so dramatic an intervention Um, by what we might call just happenstance, but we know that God is in that. And so David then goes to En Gedi, and that's where we're going to find him in chapter 24. And so on three occasions now, God has delivered David and demonstrated that he is not going to allow Saul to destroy him. Now that's going to 
move in a different direction. So far, it's been guarding David's life that has been uh, the priority. And God has demonstrated his faithfulness to David by guarding his life. Now it's going to take a turn. We get to chapter 24. Uh, we are we now see a turn in the tide, so to speak, in the working of God. I don't know that it's a tide in Saul's heart, um, in David's mind, but it certainly is in the narrative. And this is going to pick up the theme now where we are transitioning from David being on the run, although technically he's on the run the rest of the book, um, from David being on the run to David being um, uh, established over Saul. And Saul becomes the one in jeopardy. From here forward, we're going to find though Saul is still king, he is, his life is going to be the life that's going to be put on jeopardy, not once, but twice, and really three times uh, when you consider what Samuel had to say to him being uh, brought up from Sheol. And so we're going to uh, see this transition now. We have three times where David has narrowly escaped by his by the, the skin of his teeth. Um, we find now from 24 on that the that the that it's going to turn. And now it's Saul that's going to narrowly escape. Even though Saul is still in the role of the hunter and David is still in the role of the hunted, um, we find that God is going to work in such a fashion, again, through happenstance. If we, uh, the, the old word we used to use was this was providence, to describe the work of God within the events of life. And so now the providence of God is going to move from guarding David to giving David some uh, authority, if you will, even over Saul, even though Saul's still king and David is still technically on the run, it's Saul that's going to be in trouble and repeatedly. But again, David hasn't picked up on this. He hasn't, and we're going to see evidence of that probably next week, that David is still struggling with understanding his role. He's still not confident that he is going to actually survive to become king. And he's going to make some decisions based upon that that I believe those decisions are the ones that God calls uh, David on about building the temple, about being a man of blood. With too much blood on his hands, I think it's going to go back to those decisions when he joins the Philistines. Um, but for the time being now, David has escaped. He goes to En Gedi. He has had the encouraging word of Jonathan. He uh, knows that he can't, that, that there's a great, that Saul is still king. And, and rightly, he doesn't, uh, fault the people of Ziph for um, turning him in because that's what they needed to do. Nor does he fault the people of Keilah uh, for intending to turn him in even though they never had the opportunity. So we come to chapter 24. And of course, David gets word again. He's done with the Philistine, or Saul gets word again that David is where he's at. He's in En Gedi. Whether it's the same individuals or not, we're not told on this occasion. And so now he's going after David 600 with 3,000 of the best of Israel. Uh, he goes to seek David as men. He's on the rocks of the wild goats, which is uh, just to the east, no, just to the west of um, the Salt Sea, or the Dead Sea, uh, up on the ridge. And David, of course, is in En Gedi, which is a very narrow valley that where there's a small creek and there's a nice waterfall uh, a very protected area, uh, somewhat secluded, 
um, there on the west side of the Dead Sea. And so you uh, have some caves in that area, and uh, Saul, looking for David, ends up going into the one of the very caves that David and his men are staying. So they're, high, they're, they're way back in the caves. They, Saul comes into the mouth of the cave. He is there basically to use the restroom to just attend to his needs is what it says. And we assume that those are of a private nature. And so he goes into there and uh, there's David and his men. And here's the statement that comes out that we want to deal with. That's gonna, this is a, a dilemma that's going to confront David all the way from here on. And he is going to pass every test. And uh, it's in verse 4. It says, Then the men of David said to him, This is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. And David arose and secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And so while Saul is taking care of his needs, David sneaks in there, cuts off a piece of his garment, and goes back into the cave, back deeper. And in that deeper recess, he has a little whispering conversation with his men who want to say, well, why just cut off his robe? Their intention is, listen, God in his providence has given this man into your hand. You have surprise, you have him alone, isolated. You you have all of your men with you. Here we are. Um, How can you, and of all the caves Saul picks, he picks this one. And there are a number of caves in that area. Um, and so they're, they're and on top of all of this, on top of the, the providential events that seem to point to you should take this matter into your own hands, is a prophetic word. Now, we don't know the origin of this, whether where it came from, really, this prophetic word that they say um, that God told you, I will deliver your enemy into your hand that you may do to him as it seems good to you. We don't have that uh, foundation for us um, of where that came from, whether that came to him in a uh, setting of the prophets, of uh, the, the uh, Abiathar who was with him. We don't know where that really originated from, but his men were aware of it. David was aware of it. But I want you to notice a couple of things about this that the men quote. The men say, this is what the Lord told you. First of all, God's promise is is pretty general. I will deliver your enemy into your hand. Um, And the question is, is Saul David's enemy? And my contention all along is that David is Saul's enemy, but Saul is not David's enemy. And so David is going to resist the implications of the statement and and the likelihood is, as we're going to see, is that this is referencing the, the enemies of the Lord. Um, and the secondary aspect of it, even if it does refer to Saul, um, God doesn't say, take matters in your own hands and kill him. He doesn't give him a directive. He gives him a test. Do with him what you want. Let's find out what's in your heart here, David. Let's see what you're going to do. Do with your enemy as you want. What is your wish upon your enemy? Um, and... Uh, David understands the very fine nuances of this prophecy sufficiently to recognize this doesn't give him liberty 
to take Saul's life, to violate um, the anointing that God has put on Saul, that it is not David's place to uh, change the leadership in David's time. And so even though he is given seemingly a kind of a blank check, kind of a, a permissive statement here, do what you want with your enemy when I put him into your hand, um, David is going to respond in a godly way. Now, does God still do this? I would contend he does. Um, and we, not that God would ever lead us to sin. Um, he does not tempt anyone to sin, nor is he tempted to sin. Um, and so when men are tempted, we are led off by our own lusts and not God. Uh, but it's certain that God tests us. There's not a lot of difference between testing and, and tempting, uh, other than the purpose of the initiator. The initiator of a test wants you to pass. Their intention is that you choose right. The intention of a tempter is that you fail, that you sin. And that's the, it's the same root word for both temptation and testing. Um, so what is that point is not the activity of God, but the intention of God. What does God want you to do? Does he want you to sin or does he want you to do right? Well, God, we understand God doesn't want us to sin, so he doesn't tempt us to do evil, um, but he does try us or test us. And here David is tested. Let's see what's in his heart. And God's going to do this again and again and again among the kings. Uh, perhaps most notably is Hezekiah, where God directly says, uh, I'm going to kind of step away from Hezekiah and see what he does on his own. Let's just see. God's really been very engaged with him, and, and Hezekiah's doing well, and God's blessing him. And God says, I'm going to just step away and see what he does on his own. And that's sort of what's going on here, where God just sits back and says, let's see what David will do on his own. When I give his enemy into his hand, and you can do whatever you want. It doesn't say to destroy him. It says do what you want. And God is going to draw out the heart of David in this opportunity. Are you going to lay hold of the opportunity to advance yourself? Or are you going to stay in that role of preserving one who is hunting you because it's right? Are you going to do what is best uh, even though certainly there would be allowance if he had killed Saul. Um, but this is what makes David a man after God's own heart. And so David recognizes that this is not what's going to happen. And in fact, in verse 7, he says, He held his servants with these words. What words? The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing as the anointed of the Lord. It is not ever lost on David who he's dealing with. He is dealing with his king, the Lord's anointed. And so David is not only going to hold himself back, he's going to restrain all of the men who are with him. Saul gets up and leaves the cave perfectly safe. And then we are confronted with an even deeper sense of David's heart in that after he cut off the corner of the uh, of, of, of Saul's robe, it says that, just that act bothered him. Verse 5 says, It troubled him because he has cut Saul's robe. Who am I to go up and, and do injury even to the clothing that the king wears? Wow. Now there's a heart that demonstrates what it means to truly honor the king. 
which we are commanded to do in the New Testament, honor the king. He is a servant of the Lord, Romans says, a minister of God in that role. So we honor him. Now remember who David is honoring. I'm going to keep bringing this up before you. Who is David honoring? A man God has rejected, a man who has just gotten done slaughtering the priests of the Most High God of Israel, a man who is hunting innocent people, who is threatening, issues threatening, but David is still very sensitive to his need to honor the king. Is he the king we want? Is he the king that's going to lead us to serve God? No. Is he the king that we are going to applaud and, and uh, be thrilled with? No. But he's still the king. And twice in this verse, he's the anointed one. Whether you like him, whether you are distressed by him, whether you're being hunted by him, whether he's your enemy or your friend, whether you uh, acquiesce to his aid in hunting David or whether you hide David, he's still the king. Now remember who David's telling this to. He's not telling this to a group of uh, fine, upstanding citizens, is he? Who's he talking to? He's talking to a bunch of guys who are runaway slaves and, and in trouble with the law. These are guys that are on the margins of society, uh, sneaking around. And he's teaching them and training them that it doesn't matter if he's hunting us. We're going to honor the king. And so David goes, chases him down, reveals himself. We already studied in the past, verse 13, the, um, that uh, the proverb of the ancients, wickedness proceeds from the wicked. Uh, to rebel against your king, even when you are the enemy of the king, is wickedness. And David says, I'm not going to be against you. You will not find my hand against you, O king. But then he does say something else in the previous verse that I want to talk about a little bit. And this is the drive behind a willingness to surrender even to a wicked leadership. And this is David's statement to Saul. He is just, and let, let's back up a little bit and just see the whole conversation that culminates here um, in 12 and 13. It says, why do you listen to the words of men who say, Indeed, David seeks your harm? Look this day, your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave, and someone urged me to kill you. But my eye spared you, and I said, I will not stretch my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you. Know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand. And I have not sinned against you, yet you hunt my life to take it. So he has established publicly his innocence, his willingness to submit to authority, his willingness to recognize that, that there is no rebellion, there is no evil, there is nothing intended there. Verse 12, Let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you. Can you see how often that's being said? It's repeated at the end of verse 13. Um, and so, David's statement here is the foundation of what it means to really surrender and not rebel against that authority and yet recognize that they are very deserving of God's judgment. But it is God's to judge them. And so, 
David invokes the Lord's name and says, you know, let the Lord avenge me on you. I had opportunity to get revenge. I had opportunity to stop this thing right now. I would be the king. I would be on my way to being king. Um, you would be dead. Uh, Jonathan has already agreed in covenant relationship with me that he would not vie me or go with against me for the throne, that he would serve me instead of being king. Um, it could it was all laid out. It seemed to be a perfect scenario. And David says, no, that's rebellion. You're an evil king. But my trust isn't in my own hand. It's not in that violence against the Lord's anointed. If God is through with you, it is for God to judge you. And it is for the Lord to avenge. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, the Lord says. So that's for the Lord to do. And repeatedly, David keeps saying, My hand shall not be against you. The Lord's anointed. Now, some have said, I've had a couple people just say, well, you keep talking about that, but Saul was the Lord's anointed and our president or our authority is not. And I just want to remind you, let's go to Romans 13, just so I can just settle that in your mind that uh, all government is of God. <clears throat> verse Chapter 13, verse 1, I assumed this may be too much. And so I guess I'm going to, Go there now and just cover this base. Um, although the people said that aren't here, of course. Uh, verse 1 says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Look at verse 4. For he is God's minister to you for good. Who is God's minister? We're not talking about the pastor. We're talking about the king. And in this setting for Paul, we're talking about Caesar. A man who worshipped a lot of different gods and didn't care much for the God of the Jews, let alone the Christians. He is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil, the end of verse 4. Verse 5, therefore you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience's sake. This is why you pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. They are the servants or ministers of God. God has put them in their place. Every authority, no authority except exists except from God. And they are appointed by God. And so these authorities are established, and this is a New Testament teaching about not a biblical or a Israelite authority. This is written to the Romans in Rome. Right? The authority over them is Caesar and the and the Roman Senate and and the legions and and all that is invoked in that, that's the setting that Paul's writing to. And so, yes, I recognize that the word anointing here um, sets uh, Saul aside as, as one of the those of Israel. And we're going to find out that Saul is not uh, unredeemed. 
He is rejected as king, but he is not rejected for eternity. But that word anointing there and the word appointment there are related. Greek to Hebrew, but there's a relationship there. So we are called to surrender ourselves to that kind of authority, recognizing that this is the ordinance of God. And so this statement by David back in 1 Samuel 24, my hand shall not be against you. This needs to be our testimony. My hand will not be against my king. Those authorities over us, in our setting, my president. But, does that mean I approve of everything my president does, or my congress, or my mayor, or any of those? No. And so what is our response? Our response is the same as David's. The Lord judge you. It is, you are his servant, not our servant. And this we have confused. Oh, our country has so screwed this up. We are convinced that, and the word politician, you know what that word means? Politician? Huh? Liar? No, it doesn't mean liar. The word politician means servant of the people. That's what the word means. And so, we, we have the concept in our nation that we that these people are there. They're our servants. We're their masters. But that's not God's view. And so that's why we think that we still hold this right to judge them, um, to avenge ourselves on them, because we are their bosses. And this is fundamental to the philosophy of a democracy, is that we are their bosses. And we put ourselves in the place where God says, his places. He is their master. They are his servants doing his work. And to raise your hand against them is to raise your hand against the ordinance of God, that God has ordained them, appointed them to those authorities. And so they are not the servants of the people. They are the servants of God in that role. And so guess who's going to judge them? Not you and not me. Not the electorate. Not the mob. The ones who are going to judge them is the Lord. And so again, he repeats it. Let the Lord be judge. And judge between you and me and see and plead my case and deliver me out of your hand. And so David concludes by reminding Saul... Um, this is now the fourth time. This time it wasn't my life that was in jeopardy, it was yours. Get the picture? The Lord has delivered me from your hand, and now I have delivered you. The Lord put you in my hand, and I spared your life. Because you're the Lord's servant, not my servant. If you're my servant, I could, you know, take you out, back of the woodshed. People don't know what that means anymore, do you? Uh, that's, that's where kids got whooped, got their spankings back there with a switch. You had to go to the woodshed to get a good piece of wood to nail that kid. And then no one else could hear. Uh, they had to stay at the woodshed too until they were done crying. That was the deal. Um, it's not my role. It is not our role to be jury, 
judge, or executioner. It is God's. We can present our case to the Lord. And rightly, I think, we need to present our case to the government sometimes, which is what David is doing here. He is pleading his innocence. He is saying, people have said that I'm doing this horrible thing and I'm trying to kill you. Well, I'm not trying to do you any harm. I intend you no harm. And if I was to intend you harm, I would have taken it in my own hands a few minutes ago. You'd be, you know, in your pool of your own blood. And so we have this message that we speak to our government. And that is, the Lord's going to judge you. The Lord judge you. Not the electorate. Not the mob. The Lord judge you. You're his servant. You're responsible to him. And we call, and we'll present our case to the Lord. We're going to present our case to you. And that is the condition of our land. And there's a very popular book out there called The Harbinger um, that's been written. And uh, he goes through from way back to the founding of our country. And he looks at some of the events of these last 20 years or so. And he comes to what I believe is a right conclusion that there isn't a judgment, that there not only is a judgment coming, there is judgment now going on in our land. And he looks at prophecies of judgment that are occurring. And it's time that we recognize that this is the prayer of the saints. Lord, you judge between them and us. Between the king and me. You be that judge. You take your vengeance. So I don't need to pack an arsenal and and get a uh, place to uh, hole up and that I could defend and you know get rocket launchers and all the rest. That that's not on the agenda. It's if anything, we should be more like David and just say, I'm going to run and hide in the wilderness. If, if the state wants my life and I'm innocent, not because of civil disobedience, but because they just hate Christians, then I'm going to run. And that's appropriate. Run and hide. It is not appropriate to take up arms, even against a king hunting you. Even if you're innocent. And because we have been inundated with the philosophy that we have all of these rights, that we feel that we have, therefore, the right to defend ourselves against our own government, that is not a right. That is called rebellion. And this is not where David's position is. It is not a tenable position for any Christian. Now, if you want to... Def- uh, take on self-defense issues with regard to criminals that come into your house, that's a whole different sphere of teaching. Okay, God's Word talks about that. But when we're dealing with a government, now we're no longer in civil disobedience. We're no longer in this, once we start taking up arms against our government, we are in the full rebellion. And let there be no mistake that rebellion is against God. Because the government is his servant. In this instance, once the case is given and the evidence is shown, 
Even Saul responds and he says, here's the voice of David, says, is that my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept, says to David, you are more righteous than I. You have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. You have shown this day how you have dealt well with me. For when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him get away safely? Therefore, may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And in essence, in in Romans 13, that's what it talks about. Um, If we would treat well the authorities that are over us, then, and they still do evil to us, the Lord will judge them. But our fear should be gone. We shouldn't fear those authorities at all, even if they want to do injury to us. Because we have done good to them. We have not laid hold of opportunities to do injury. And rightly does Saul declare, the Lord will reward you. The Lord's reward are for those who will do good to their enemy. And I think that has something to do with something Jesus said. Love those who persecute you. Love and do not hate. Okay? Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. All of this is not lost on Saul. And he recognizes that this this chapter becomes a change um, between what happened um, in 23 and now in 24, that there is a movement now that it almost appears that even though it from a physical standpoint, it doesn't look this way, but from a heavenly standpoint, from us looking at it from God's perspective, um, David isn't the one in jeopardy anymore. Now it's clearly Saul. And it's, and it's almost as though the, that, that knowledge falls on Saul. And he recognizes it. And in verse 20 he says, Now I know indeed that you shall surely be king, that the king of Israel shall be established in your hand. And so he says, now he's going to talk to David as if David is an anointed one. And the attitude of Saul's heart is going to change here. It says, therefore swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. And David swears to Saul. So Saul recognizes, okay, um, you know, you're right. I just can't seem to pin you down. I've tried and tried and God intervenes. It's very evident. And by the way, he's going to come around and do this again later on, no doubt. Um, But now he's recognizing that David is definitely going to be king. He's an anointed one. And so his, his desire is that David would show the same kindness to Saul's whole family that he has just shown to Saul in that cave. Will you not be the one to slay my family? And David agrees. And David's not going to raise his hand against Saul's family. Others will. Thinking doing David a favor. The enemy of the Philistines will do that. Um, The But David, as soon as he finds one remaining, he's going to preserve him in 2 Samuel and put him at his own table and and feed him and house him and protect him. The last of the line. 
So here we have two anointed ones, and the tide has turned now. And in Saul's heart, he knows that while it was established as soon as the prophetic word came out of Samuel's lips, now it has firmly been established that I'm the one God is hunting. And David is the one who's the new anointed. And this is really, uh, I don't know if I have time to really express this um, the way I want to, this is our condition on earth right now. We are the children of God, servants of the Most High. And God's promise to us is that we will rule and reign with Christ. Now somewhere in history there, the Catholics and a few others got the idea that that meant on earth. And in their post-millennial view of eschatology, they felt that the church would bring in the millennial kingdom, that we would rule the earth in Jesus' name as a church, and specifically the Pope, and that we did such a great job that for a thousand years, then Jesus would come at the end and applaud our efforts. Maybe he would come at the end, or we would just continue. Um, But the fact is that the offer to rule and reign is... Um, with Christ is in his kingdom, with him, not in his stead as his agents, um, that he will come first to judge and then to rule. And here Saul is under God's judgment, and so God, Jesus is going to come to judge his current, I hate to use the word secular because you can't use that because that means apart from God, his servants in authority, Politicians, kings, prime ministers, presidents, sheiks, and such. Um, He's going to judge them. He's their master. He will judge them. And we will reign over them, their people, their nations. And so in much the same way that David here is an anointed, dealing with an anointed one, we are the anointed future rule, not in the political machines of this world, but rather in God's rule, in Jesus' reign, in his kingdom. And so we come and we engage them not with um, a lack of authority. We have an authority, but it is not our own. It is from Christ. And it is not for this age, but the age to come. And so in much the way that David approaches Saul, we can approach our government. And it's a very powerful position. And occasionally we'll have government individuals who will recognize that and have such a relationship with the church in this manner. Um, Whether the organized church or individuals within the church Um, But we have this position. Whether the world recognizes it or not, whether the world is trying to keep it from happening by thinking that they can slaughter Christians and keep it from occurring, which is Saul's heart to this point, and it's still going to rear its ugly head again or time or two. Um, David's not from a weak position. We're going to see that next week in his dealings with Nabal. Um, He is not weak. And don't consider that because we submit to government that we are lacking 
in authority. Rather, we are recognizing a greater authority. Not the government's authority over us as greater, but God's authority over us. That He is the anointer. He is the appointer. He is the ordainer. And therefore, I wait for His hand to judge them, and in the midst of that judgment, to then establish His other anointed in His new kingdom. And that process that we are actively involved in right now, uh, it takes some time, folks. David does not immediately become king, even after Saul's dead. The guy's going to spend 16 months among the Philistines. That's about two weeks from now. It's a hard road, and I'm not going to tell you it's easy. The guy spent the time in the wilderness, um, but he did righteousness. He defended um, Nabal's people. He he uh, is going to defend nations or cities from the Philistines, from their raiding parties. He's going to um, hold his own. He's going to stand fast. All the while, he's really living in exile within his own country. And that's who we are. We are not weak. We have the power God has put within our hands, but we are not to use it against God's timing and in place of God's judgment. No. We wait on the Lord. Let Him deal with that. And this our founding fathers did not conceive. Or they conceived and rejected it And so they raised their arms because they had the power to do so, to throw off their king. And they were wrong. And hence we have a nation that is established with rebellion at its heart. Because they did not recognize that In this world, in this age, while we are the anointed ones, that our time of reign has not come. That is for the day when we stand with Jesus. We are in the time of honoring the other anointed one, the appointed one, the ordained one, the government. That is established by God for our benefit, even when that one does hideous things like slaughtering priests. I mean, that's about as hideous as it gets, don't you think? I mean, would we really be ready to save the president if he was put within your reach of your guns, if he had just gotten done collecting all the Baptist preachers in the land and slaughtering them. That's what David just did. He just saved the life of the man who had slaughtered all but one priest of the land. That's the extent of his heart to trust the Lord to judge. An opportunity does not equal permission. 
Because God gives us opportunity or means, because he gives us the strength to rebel, does not mean we have permission to do any of those things. If anything, those are great ways for God to test our heart. Do we have hearts that are after God's own heart? This man did. And he becomes a very powerful example for us to follow. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for those of you appointed over us in this age. We know how wicked men can be without the controls of government. And Lord, even when we see a government that is doing evil, we recognize that that is also by your appointment, for you have appointed them to wrath, to judgment. Not our wrath, not our judgment, but yours. And we trust that you will hear our case. We will pour it out before you that we will remain as David, an innocent one. That we'll remain willing to wait in the wilderness of this land. Wait for the completion of or the ascension of our anointing into your kingdom. Lord, we do see your hand at work. We know that it will come with great wrath one day soon. And as the martyrs before your throne even now cry out for your vengeance, we know it will come. Lord, in the midst of that, let us plead our case to those around us that we might salvage some, both in authority and under our authority. They might hear your words of truth, that some, even in this age of judgment, of sin, might be saved. Lord, we know that that comes not from a position of earthly might, but of spiritual might. And so, Lord, we pray that you might put within us your spirit in a mighty way. We might brightly shine in these days. In Christ Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.